when I think about mental health and well-being, I, I immediately go to this idea that, you know, Western culture has disembodied us. It has given us the idea, the false idea, that our minds and bodies are separate entities. And they're not. There's, you know, in my way of thinking about embodiment, there is no such thing as mental health, as different from physical health, as different from, you know, an embodied self in the world health that we experience. And it's perhaps one of the the problems of the system around us that we have also disconnected the, the way we think about and treat these issues, right? I mean, when you think about your mental health, when you when you can imagine describing symptoms or the state of your mental health, what you're probably describing is a physical symptom, actually. Like you might be describing a challenge of being able to focus or a lack of energy or a difficulty of, you know, connecting with joy. These are deeply physical experiences. And so why I think this is so important for leaders is that just like the system is at this point of reckoning and recognition of the harm that it's created, I think leaders need to also recognize that some of these behaviors are embedded in us and we need access to a sense of embodied self-awareness in order to understand what these behaviors are when they are useful to us, and when they might not be useful to us. Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. Earlier this year, podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, and I produced Work Shouldn't Suck's Ethical Reopening Summit. The event took place online Tuesday, April 27th, and featured eight sessions, 25 amazing speakers, and covered a whole host of topics related to the ethical reopening of workplaces amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We raced to produce the summit from start to finish in just three weeks as we felt the urgency and stress mounting as workplaces were in the midst of reopening decisions. Several months on, we still feel the content is as necessary as ever, so we decided to release each of the sessions in podcast form. In each of the eight sessions, you'll hear the conversations just as the summit attendees did. As a reminder, in late April 2021, COVID vaccine distribution was just gaining speed, and we had yet to begin hearing about the Delta variant. From that vantage point in time, it very much looked like by fall 2021, things might be settling back into somewhat of a quote-unquote normal routine. As I record this preamble in fall 2021, that's not the case. We're now talking about breakthrough infections, booster shots, schools reopening and closing again. Hospital ICUs are packed in states across the U.S., and still how to safely gather indoors as temperatures again begin to drop with the change in seasons. In this session, Mental Health and Well-Being Amid a Global Pandemic, the panel discusses how we and our organizations acknowledge and support the well-being of everyone as we continue to live and work through a global pandemic. Panelists include Shannon Litzenberger, Sophia Park, and Joanne Lee Wagner, with the conversation moderated by the awesome Diane Ragsdale. So over to you, Diane. All right, folks, we are glad to see so many of you here today. And I see we're just now on the hour, so I'm gonna get started. Welcome to Mental Health and Wellbeing Amid a Global Pandemic. I'm Diane Ragsdale. I'm the Director of Cultural Leadership at the BAMP Center for Arts and Creativity, among other gigs, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm a white, middle-aged woman. We're 
supposed to do visual descriptions. That's what I'm doing here. I'm a white middle-aged woman with kind of blondish, brownish, grayish, more and more grayish hair. I'm wearing a black top and I'm sitting in front of sort of chartreuse colored curtains in my attic in the Netherlands, which is where I live. And I am joined today by Joanne Lee Wagner, Sophia Park, and Shannon Litzenberger. And I'm going to introduce them as we get into our first round of questions. But before we start, we just a second ago decided it might be really nice to ask Shannon, and thank you, Shannon, for agreeing to maybe do a 30-second to one-minute exercise with us or movement of some kind. Shannon is an embodiment expert, dancer, and choreographer. We're going to get into what her work is about today. Shannon, something we might do quickly before we begin? Sure, absolutely. So without any introduction, let's just find our gaze away from the computer screen for a moment and let your focus open wide into whatever space you're in. If you feel like sitting up in your chair or standing, placing your feet on the ground, and I will just invite you to lift your cheekbones a little bit and gaze high up onto the horizon. And if you don't have a horizon in front of you, you can imagine one. And just let the feeling of joy wash over you for a moment. One of the teachers that I have says, she quotes a, a Jungian therapist that says, we have a duty to joy. And it means that we're able to put ourselves in an embodied state using our imagination. So whatever, whatever you're feeling right now, we're going to call on our duty to joy and just look at the horizon and lift our cheekbones and feel joy wash over us. We'll take a couple breaths here. And when you feel that sense of joy, we'll just bring that back into the space together. Thanks. Thanks for the offer, Diane. <laughs> Shannon, yeah, thank you. That was really wonderful. And I hope that each of you into this space where we have a quick short 30 minutes to get into this topic, and then we'll open it up for questions. If you have questions along the way, please feel free to just pop over to that Q&A uh, panel and jot them down, and we'll, we'll move over and take a look at those a bit later. I just want to give a bit of context before we get started. You know, concerns about mental health and well-being and stress in the workplace are nothing new. They precede the pandemic, but without a doubt, things have become uh, much, much, much harder. And this has become a priority or should have become one at any company or enterprise or organization or association. The tech company Project Include recently completed a survey of about 3,000 tech companies, and some of the what they've found is really hard to hear, but, but probably not surprising if you've been living through this in your own work situation. They say remote work since COVID-19 is exacerbating harm, harassment, and hostility. Harmful work experiences and anxiety have all increased, particularly among Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian folks, women and non-binary and transgender people, and those over 50. 
They're saying that employees are being hurt by increased work expectations, poor communication practices, lack of separation between work and home, and a focus on activity over impact. Seemingly interminable uncertainty, which leads to the inability to plan, results in depression, anxiety, problems concentrating, and brain fog. And just a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times gave us the word languishing to describe this overwhelm and fatigue that so many of us are feeling and suffering from. So if leaders have not already made it a business imperative, have not made mental health and well-being a top consideration in all decisions, many are saying we need to do so now. And so this is what we're going to dive into. I am going to start with a round of questions that will give you a chance to get to know each of our panelists and the kind of work that they're already doing that intersects with mental health and well-being. Joanne, if it's okay, I'd like to start with you. You're the Vice President of People Operations at Common Future, and you describe yourself as a people and culture specialist, and you have degrees in cognitive science and environmental management and sustainability. Can you start with a visual description of yourself and then tell us a bit about Common Future and its mission and how you think about people and supporting their needs? Yeah, thanks so much, Diane. And uh, thank you, Shannon, for that embodied exercise. My um, nickname for my coworkers is Joy Anne. <laughs> and so that one was definitely right up my alley and a nice place to ground us as we get into, you know, as we just heard the disturbing stats that Diane just shared with us. So yeah, hi everyone. I'm glad to be here today. My name again is Joanne. Pronouns are she, her. As a visual description, I have on a yellow shirt with flowers on it. I have fair skin, uh, brown hair, brown eyes, and identify as Korean American. I'm sitting in a black office chair and my background is kind of, you'll see like my kitchen, work desk area, play kitchen over here for the kiddo uh, who might end up making an appearance, but we'll see. So yeah, just to get into the work of Common Future. So at Common Future, our work really exists at the intersection of economic justice and racial justice. We're a nonprofit organization that addresses the racial wealth gap and builds wealth in primarily uh, Black, Brown, Indigenous, women-led, and Asian rural communities. And we do that through entrepreneurship and really breaking down the barriers for folks of color, uh, women, and rural folks to really access resources. And over the last 18 years, We've worked with over 200 community leaders, including uh, Vanessa Rowanhorse of Native Women Lead, who we just heard on the main stage. And alongside these leaders, we're creating economic power, choice, ownership for those that are most often marginalized by our economic systems. We're a 21-person organization. We're Black-led majority people of color and women. And of course, because we're here in the context of speaking about the pandemic, I think it's also important to recognize that 25% of us also identify as working mothers. So as we all know, you know, it wasn't just the pandemic that was taxing the mental health and well-being of our folks over the past year. You know, it was the continued murder of Black people at the hands of police. It was the racial justice protests and the awakening of mainstream America um, to the realities 
that folks of color are living through every day. It was the domestic terrorism that we saw earlier this year at the Capitol and, you know, recently the increased violence and hate towards Asian people. And, you know, when it comes to the people at Common Future, I can honestly say that many of us, and I'm sure many of you all, are carrying varying degrees of trauma, of grief, of loss. And so many of us are super just bone tired, right? Not only because of what everything that's happening, but also, again, the continuing lack of childcare and the emergency homeschooling that's still continuing to this day with many schools not uh, reopened to the level that they had been previously. And so, you know, when I and the leaders at Common Future are thinking about how we support our people, you know, it really starts with deeply understanding who our people are and just knowing that what's happening in our world is affecting them really at a deeply personal level. And I think it's recognizing the emotional labor that our folks are carrying and then building our practices and policies from there so that we're not you know, doing what, unfortunately, right, we just heard about the example of base camp from um, the main stage where, you know, that kind of behavior is re-traumatizing anyone Mm -hmm. who identifies as who's already affected by what's happening. And, you know, I think that for us as an organization, it's really important that we're not needing to explain again and again why we're sad, mad, depressed languishing. And so I know I've been speaking for a little bit, but I'm just going to finish my point, Diane. Um, Great. So um, yeah, and I just want to explain, you know, what support looks like in our organization. And I would say that it happens at the institutional, the interpersonal, and the individual levels. And so as an institution, you know, we focus on this concept or when the pandemic was starting, we really started to focus on this concept of essentialism, which um, was written about by Greg McCown in the book titled Essentialism. And mm-hmm. it's really this concept, right, where you're, um, unlike the stat where Diane just shared, folks are kind of just focused on this productivity mindset of like doing tasks. So the concept of essentialism is really about focusing your energy on where you're making the biggest difference. And either delegating or letting go, really, quite honestly, of the rest. And for us, in terms of a practice at our organization at the institution level, you know, it really meant that our department heads were working with teams to actually reduce the workload to the extent possible. At the interpersonal level, it was about supervisors really modeling what this essentialist behavior is, and then also mm-hmm. continuously reinforcing this culture of care and empathy in working with their direct reports and really in all the relationships that they have at work and just asking questions like, how are you really? Or I know that these times must be hard on you. Please take time off or how can I support? And I think that that interpersonal relationship and just like the recognition is so important when it comes to addressing mental health in the workplace. And finally, I think at the individual level, you know, it was making sure that our employees had access to the mental health benefits and resources and knew how to take advantage of them, but also just like straight up paid time off, you know. So last year we closed our offices for three additional weeks in in addition to the paid time off and 
the holidays that we already had in place. And one of the weeks being the week of the election, which as we all know in the States anyway, it was just chaotic that week. And so, you know, just like anticipating those things. And I think giving the paid time off was was super important just in, in terms of being able to address mental health and just continue this, like be really deeply empathetic to the situations of people. And I think that this shift, right, towards the role of managers in particular, toward from like delegating and overseeing to really, you know, having that empathetic mindset and being like problem solving alongside employees so that there was a HBR, a Harvard Business Review article that just came out about that, about the shifting role of managers. And I think, you know, that's exactly right. Thank you so much, Joanne. That's what a great start to this conversation. And if I remember that article, it came out like two weeks ago, they, in it, they were ma- making the point that much of what we have historically thought management is will be automated, actually, because more and more we have we see technology platforms that are arising to automate things like nudging employees or, you know, keep keeping track of deadlines, et cetera. And that is this em- em- empathy that will become the one of the core skills. Thank you so much for bringing that up. That's great. Sophia, can I can I bring you in here? So you have a degree in neuroscience and are currently working at Fractured Atlas as a project management specialist. You also have a gallery that you co-founded and run, I believe out of your apartment. Is that right? Yeah, but loosely on the internet now. Yeah, yeah. And on the internet, which, but anyway, I think that that's extraordinary. And as I understand it, you made your way from neuroscience into the arts and that this had partly to do with a a growing conviction of the role the arts can play in people's lives and perhaps even their well-being. And I wonder if we could start by just with a visual description and hearing a bit about that transition. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sophia. Pronouns are she, her. And I am a light-skinned East Asian woman with black long hair that's curly, I'm wearing this baby blue sweater, and in the background is my small Brooklyn apartment, where one side is a kitchen and the other side is actually a DJ turntable, and the walls are a blush pink color. And I I jumped from science to the arts, even though my fondness for science will never fade, partially because of my own well-being and my concern for my well-being. When I studied neuroscience, the path that we were given, the two options really were to, I remember talking about this, was to become a doctor or a doctor, to get an MD or a PhD, and not many other jobs were offered as a place where I could grow post-school. And so I was pursuing that path and slowly came to realize that it just really wasn't for me. And in at the same time, I was spending a lot of time at the Metropolitan Museum of Art while I was having those realizations about my science career and finding a lot of solace and a lot of just comfort being around artwork. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to jump straight in and I applied for a job at the Met and was very fortunate to get a job and kind of started my career there. And I think 
while recently I've been really thinking about grieving and within the context of the workplace as well. And I actually wrote an article for Monument Labs Bulletin about how we can think about memorials and public spaces and our relationship to grieving in terms of that as well. So I've been thinking about things on multiple layers and it's it's interesting how the job that I have right now, I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. I know, Diane, we talked about, you mentioned the grieving article that I wrote and I was on a podcast with our co-CEO, Tim, about that really came about because I was grieving before the pandemic. And I think, you know, grief doesn't end there. I'm not a grief counselor or anything like that, but I had a coworker at that time who told me grief comes in waves and you just slowly start to build ways in which you could greet that wave better over time. And I think work is one part of how we do that. So those are that's the framework for what I'm thinking about in terms of well-being and care. And I think, Joanne, what you were talking about, this empathy and this space of care is so important nowadays, not that it ever wasn't before, but especially as we enter digital spaces, I think thinking about care within digital space is also very important and something that we forget because sometimes we think of the digital as a tool versus this communal space that we create. So yeah, I'll stop there. I'm not quite sure, Diane, if I answered your question. Well, I hope no, I'm so glad you brought up that article, which um, was really beautiful. And I also remember listening to the podcast that you and a few other folks had done with Tim on the topic of grieving. And grief is actually a word that we're hearing a lot these days. People are referring, on many levels, we're grieving. And I wonder what, what you what. What what do you think workplaces can do, actually, in a, in a kind of practical way, to be uh, more empathic and responsive to employees who are going through grief now and as they come back into the workplace? What were what 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 did you experience? Yeah, I think what Joanne actually was talking about in terms of moving with empathy is super important. I remember I entered the conversation around grieving in the workplace as a younger professional and earlier on in my career. And I remember feeling this incredible sense of, oh no, I I can't ask for time off. I can't ask for help because I think as young people, we've been taught, you know, everything will fall apart if you're not there. You know, everything, it's, it's not going to work out or you're going to lose your job or it's something grand is going to happen. And partially due to obviously the job market and what economic kind of histories that we've lived through, right? But something that was super was my manager at that time just said, take as much time as you need. Take the time off. And I know that sounds really simple, but just my manager being able to identify and know me well enough also to be like, hey, take a couple days off or don't worry about needing to ask me for time off to go do something to commemorate your friend or your family member. And I think that first step of offering that space is super important. And it's something I think people forget about often. It's something that they can do to be able to help someone who is grieving. Yeah, it's it may sound simple, but it also sounds extraordinarily exceptional, at least in the U.S. context. And I know Fractured Atlas is 
has has in the past, I don't know currently, but you know, explored unlimited vacation and things like that that are, seem like you know huge gifts at a time like this. You know, to give people. I think it maybe it was Joanne, you the person that mentioned this kind of carving out time for emotional labor, right? As a concept. Thank you, Sophia. Uh, Shannon, I'd love to get you into this conversation. You are a professional dancer and choreographer and also an embodiment expert, which we mentioned earlier. We got a little peek at <laughs> just an exercise there. But I know you've spent a lot of this COVID year exploring the intersections between embodiment, resilience, imagination, power dynamics, and how neuroscience actually can increase our understanding of these, these, the way these work together. You and I also work at the BAMP Center in the Cultural Leadership Program, where you teach embodied leadership or, or facilitate uh, workshops, really, and uh, lead sessions in that. I wonder if you could give a visual introduction and say just a bit about what embodied leadership is and how it helps leaders, What, why you think it's important. Thanks, Diane. Hi, everyone. I'm Shannon. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and uh, I am a light-skinned woman of Eastern European descent. I have longish brown blonde hair with bangs, and I'm wearing a t-shirt, short sleeve t-shirt with uh, orange and blue and beige stripes, and uh, I'm sitting in a space that is a kind of loft space with a slanted ceiling and some bookcases, some silver tins behind me. And I also have a, that you can't see, a DJ booth to one side of me that belongs to my partner. <laughs> so, yeah, so embodiment, you know, maybe I'll just say, because embodiment may be an unfamiliar idea for, for some, although, uh, you know, I recognize it's really gaining in, in mainstream visibility in this moment. But embodiment is just very simply how we are. And the how of us is a deeply relational kind of way of being that's contextual, that's connected to environmental factors, that's connected to genetic and historical factors, personal experiences. And, you know, we, the way we come to be ourselves is deeply shaped by our environment. And I think this is like a, a really important, important thing to remember that what is the world that has shaped our way of being? And I think, you know, as, as the pandemic has amplified this mainstream understanding of how systems have created conditions of harm, there's a simultaneous recognition that the forces that have shaped us inside that system have created a number of behaviors and tendencies and unconscious ways of being that are also quite harmful. And so, you know, I find that really salient to this conversation around well-being because we need to acknowledge that we are not a kind of, you know, independent entity inside a world. Like we are a connected, embedded self in the world, right? So what is that self in the world dynamic and how is the world creating it and how are we creating and replicating it inside of it? And so, of course, you know, when I think about mental health and well-being, I, I immediately go to this idea that, you know, Western culture has disembodied us. It has given us the idea, the false idea that our minds and bodies are separate entities and they're not there's you know in my way of thinking about embodiment there is no such thing as mental health 
as different from physical health, as different from, you know, an embodied self in the world health that we experience. And it's perhaps one of the the problems of the system around us that we have also disconnected the, the way we think about and treat these issues, right? I mean, when you think about your mental health, when you when you can imagine describing symptoms or the state of your mental health, what you're probably describing is a physical symptom, actually. Like you might be describing a challenge of being able to focus or a lack of energy or a difficulty of, you know, connecting with joy. These are deeply physical experience. And so why I think this is so important for leaders is that just like the system is at this point of reckoning and recognition of the harm that it's created, I think leaders need to also recognize that some of these behaviors are embedded in us and we need access to a sense of embodied self-awareness in order to understand what these behaviors are, when they are useful to us and when they might not be useful to us. Because if our aim is to create these cultures that are rooted in care, then we might need to acknowledge that our behaviors uh, are not consciously contributing to creating a culture of care. They might be connected to some other, maybe it was a survival mechanism or coping mechanism or another way that we figured out how to be in this world because this world taught us how to be. The world taught us how to feel safe, how to feel connected, how to feel a sense of self-worth. And so we've learned that from our environment and then we replicate it through our behavior. So maybe I'll just pause there and... Wow. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. And I, and I know that you've done some workshops on resilience with business school students uh, as one of the areas. You've also explored power dynamics with business school students. And, it, and I guess I just maybe just a quick follow up. Do you, what's your sense of do students, do, do these students get the work that you're doing? Do What do you think that they're gaining from this experience? Yeah, I think it's true. You know, I've had, uh, I have a relationship with a couple of different professors at, at business schools who, who are like, our students are so stressed out right now and we want to support them, uh, which is in and of itself an amazing offer. And so, so in doing some of these uh, workshops recently, I think students, you know, some of the responses were like the, the, probably the most, the nicest response was, wow, no one ever, you know, paid attention to the fact that we're so stressed out and, and about it, you know, so there was just a recognition that an offer of care was in and of itself a novel thing in a, in an academic institution. So, you know, that's, right. that's our starting point, right? That's our yeah, starting which, point. Which really just reinforces your initial point, which is that this is environment or system that you're in or the culture you're in has a lot to do with it. Yeah, thank you yeah. for that. Sophia, I'd love to bring you in here for a second because I remember reading, you sent me an article that you wrote on the Korean concept of Han that feels to me like it's really resonant with, with what Shannon's talking about in that you were talking about it in terms of being a communal experience and the way that epigenetics could explain why it was becoming proliferating in a way across borders and across generations. Would you mind just talking a bit about that, the concept and, and, and the, the point that you were making in your article? Yeah. So some context for that is I, 
I studied and conducted research in neurotoxicology, specifically studying the effects of environmental toxins on Huntington's disease. And from that, I was thinking a lot about my own trauma and the trauma of so many Korean diasporic and greater immigrant folks. And for Koreans, it's interesting because we have this this actual term, right? Like what you were talking about, Shannon, there's an embodied term for our collective trauma. And I was speculating that perhaps epigenetics, which is the idea that the environment affects you and your core, and that is passed along through generations, may offer an answer for why Han is able to proliferate on a scientific level. But above that, I think it's also how we share our stories and how we share our culture and our language that also has to do with this idea of Han. And it's it's a very difficult concept to describe. So I wouldn't say it's just trauma, but it's also this idea of resiliency that we have. It's you know manifested in so many different ways. It's manifested in how we grieve and how we are super stubborn sometimes and how we care for each other. And if you see another Korean, you know, what you know, you always say hi, and that's also all part of it, which I think is interesting because that means that it's not just the trauma, it's also our joy that's also part of it. And the fact that it's passed along generations, and which is also deeply tied to our history of Korea and the wars and the colonization and imperialism that the country has gone through, that expanded to all the global Koreans is, I'm not sure how it makes me feel, but it's definitely something that I think we should talk about. And I think it's something that I also talked to another one of my friends who's of Jewish descent, and he read this article and was like, this is exactly what we've gone through as well. And so I think that idea of this idea of translating across multiple populations and communities, I think, demonstrates the importance of community care as well. That's something that I've kind of pulled out from that conversation for sure. Wow. That's incredibly powerful. I, I remember, I think I've got the name of it, right. I read a book called Culture Mapping. And I'm, I'm sorry, I can't think of the title, but I'll try and find it and put it in the chat later. But, and it was essentially you know, going into crossing cultures, how you understand, you know, understanding people across cultures, you know, written, I think, primarily for businesses who have to work in, in multiple cultures more and more with globalization. And it just strikes me listening to you how, yeah, there's really no one size fits all well-being either, right? Like we really need to be sensitive to these community, these cultural factors as well. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. Joanne, I'm I'm curious, and I see we're getting close to where we probably want to open up and look at at, at uh, questions. And I'm glad so many of you are putting things in the chat. Somebody just mentioned "Body Keeps the Score," which is a book that Shannon talks about all the time, and I've been listening to this past week on Audible. It's great. But Joanne, I wonder if you have any perspective on this now shift that we're making to trying to address these issues at a systemic level or or environmental level. What what, what does that bring to mind for you? Yeah, thank you, Diane. I think so when Sophia was just talking about trauma and how it's kind of held with resiliency, it it made me think of a um, 
trans writer who uh, wrote on this topic about how oftentimes, especially for folks of color or folks from marginalized community, the response to trauma part and parcel with our with our resiliency, right? How we survive. And so I think in traditional mental health um, settings, it's almost like, oh, well, if you have trauma, it's something where you need to take away the trauma. But, you know, it's actually not the right frame even to look at it because it's like, well, these traumatic responses have been in response to things in our environment, things in that are happening in the world and that continue to happen in the world. So you're not trying to necessarily take away this these responses, but rather like find joy in the moments where where you're still living in traumatic times because that is essentially the the place where we're still at. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sophia, for for bringing that up. And I guess just when I think about you know, the systemic shifts that are necessary or like systems level, because that is the the place where common future works, right? Like the economic systems that we we live with are just so broken and don't and are not are not beneficial to most of us, you know, and just benefit the few, and we saw that as a part of the pandemic, just in terms of who is benefiting, like there's this stat that we have where an estimated 90% of all women and people of color owned businesses couldn't access the first round of PPP dollars, um, paycheck protection program dollars. And so like when I think about how we're responding to systems change, you know, it's like we're not trying to go back to the state where it's um, business as usual. We really want to build back what's better and I think, you know, the way that Common Future does it in our work at large is is about grounding in trust and working with leaders like Vanessa Rowanhorse of Native Women Lead and Laura Zabel of Springboard for the Arts, who we're going to be hearing from later on in the summit, who are really connected and have those deep relationships with communities and uh, who can then, you know, partner with us to ensure that their communities have a seat at the table in decision-making are really leading the strategy for how entrepreneurs are being connected to funding and advice and support and really are the ones who are developing the solutions for their communities. And so as a nonprofit, you know, living in the system, nonprofits are just historically so don't have the best reputation of caring for their people, of really prioritizing, you know, the programmatic approach to funding and support. And I think that I would offer here in the way that we approach supporting our people, that it is that, you know, supporting the employees who are working on the programs that you can't disconnect that necessarily from how you're supporting folks at the community level. And so I think that when you're when you're switching from that extractive mindset or that extractive system or like a zero sum system, right? Of saying like, okay, well, we can't support our employees because we need to support our programs. Like that's just the wrong, it's not the right mindset. You know, I think that when we're building back the type of system we want to build back is one where we're seeking the long-term sustainability of people alongside the communities that we support. And, you know, and I think it's particularly important because the issues that we face are, you know, very much like 
deeply entrenched long-term issues where it's never going to be a sprint to like fix them, right? It's always going to be a marathon and we need folks for the long haul who can really be in this work without burning out, without having mental breaks and breakdowns. And, and so, yeah, that's what we're doing at Common Future. Excellent. Thank you so much, Joanne. The, I, I'm, I'm mindful of the time and I'm going to just open up. I'm going to turn it to you, Shannon, first. Any final reflections on really anything that's come up today, any of the topics or just any recommendations or thoughts that you have for folks as a, as a point of uh, closure? Sure. Yeah. Another great resource I could just point to is Gabor Mate, a Canadian psychologist doctor who wrote a book called When the Body Says No. It's a great resource to understand this sort of integrated view of health and social environment, if that's of interest. And we can put it in the chat in a minute. Um, yeah, so much has been said. It's been so delightful to be in conversation with all of you, Joanne, Sophia, and Diane, I think I think in some ways we're all saying the same thing. And perhaps for me, like one of the one of the parting ideas that I that I am holding is just this idea of slowing down. That, you know, we can't just work at the level of strategy. We have to work at the level of culture change. And if we're if we're trying to change culture, then we need to learn. We need to to be in a state of learning. And, you know, anything new that we're learning, we can't do quickly or even necessarily efficiently at first. So we do need to slow down. We need to create cultures of well-being in our organizations. And we have to understand that this is an act of resistance in a world that wants us to be bigger, faster, better, and more. So we have to understand that like this is the revolutionary work is to be a counterculture to the, the dominant culture of productivity that we're surrounded by. And that's difficult work. Mm. Mm, thank you, Shannon, for that. Sophia, any final any final thoughts or recommendations from you? Yeah, um, kind of jumping off of what Shannon just said, I shared a quote in our initial call by Tony Cade Vimbera, the great, mm. about how not all speed is movement. And like you said, Shannon, I think trying to hold on to this idea of not moving quickly, not treating ourselves as machines, perhaps, that can just do everything very quickly, do everything well, do everything perfectly, will perhaps help us in this kind of long-term journey to ensure that we're switching our understanding of work around not just work, but care, right? We're really shifting our mindset completely from what we've been taught so far. And that will take a really long time. And it's also, I think, very similarly to the reckonings that we've gone through the past year is related to how internally we do the work. What positions of power are we in? What power are we holding on to that maybe we don't need to hold on to? How are we moving forward with this, with care at the forefront and what is safety and how does safety relate to justice? Because as we do the work every day, you know, and our every days are filled with emails and I don't know, Google Docs and what have you, but the longer game and the larger work is something greater than that. And I think for me personally, having that question 
kind of in my head, like what is justice and how do we get there? And thinking through different difficult conversations around accountability and all the questions that we've been seeing pop up lately, which all directly relate to care, will help us move forward and maybe move the needle a little bit towards where we want to go. And so that's something kind of a larger vision thing that I've been thinking about. And just one thing I know we talked about, like something you could walk away with this is if you don't have like a tea time or some kind of social time with your coworkers, just build it in. 15 minutes can do a lot. And there are also lots of cool platforms. I recommend using Oye as a way to build community. And if we don't build community, there's no way that we can even take the step towards well-being, right? So that's mm-hmm. something to add. Thank you, Sophia. And I did pop over and I didn't see any questions except a question about the report I mentioned, which I can pop into the chat. So Joanne, I'll turn it over to you to just say any any final uh, recommendations or thoughts that you'd like to leave folks with today. And then we'll we'll share some resources in the chat. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for me, it it goes back to this framing around the individual level, the interpersonal level, and the institutional level. And I think that our speakers here have just done a great job of being of sharing examples of how folks can engage with mental health and supporting employees and supporting their people at each of their levels. And, and quite frankly, some of these things are so easy, right? It just takes that time to just show up with care. You know, like, so at Common Future, we are working on an experiment around the four-day work week, but, you know, to get to this point where we're able to do this four-day work week experiment, it really did just start with, you know, us getting on the same page and saying like, hey, this is a really messed up moment we're finding ourselves in. And we need to do something for employees. We need to focus on what's essential and 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 then just reinforce that messaging in our one-on-ones. And that's the place where we started. And it's snowballed now into uh, where we can put much more structure and infrastructure around it. And so, yeah, that would be my advice to, or my final thoughts to um, those who are here with us today is like, wherever you're finding yourself, there's always something that you can do and, and we need to do it. Thank you, Joanne. That's a lovely place to start. And I can't thank you enough. You've been, this is, you've been such a terrific panel. I'm going to take a minute here and just toss some, some resources into the chat. And also just to mention, somebody asked about the report. It's, it, it's put out by Project Include and it's called Remote Work Since COVID-19 is Exacerbating Harm. And I'll try and look that up and throw it in the chat as well. Thank you all so much. I'm going to turn my attention to getting some of these resources, but thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thank you for moderating, Diane. My pleasure. Find more about the Ethical Reopening Summit, including speaker bios and session recaps at workshouldsuck.co backslash ethical hyphen reopening hyphen summit hyphen 2021. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.